Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to this segment on CTN. To learn more, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And the topic for today is thinking organizational change and leadership development. So when we are looking at developing leaders, that's a great thing for any organization to do. But then how good a leader be if the organization is not functioning properly or the things are not getting done? But at the same time, we have so many organizational change initiatives going on. But if there is a lack of proper leadership, then how would that change come about? Is it a catch-22? What are we working more on? Where are we spending more money and or efforts and or fo- where is more focus? Should there be a sinking or one should come before the other? We wanted to explore that. And for that, uh, we have Jeff Kan, who's the chief strategist and CIO with Encore Electric. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Good morning, Sanjay. I'm doing well. How are you? Very good, sir. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful morning, and uh, this is an interesting topic, at least. I hope you would find interesting just to navigate through this because, you know, people are talking leadership given this dynamic and volatile world that we are living in today. We need change, and we also need better leaders to handle the change and or whatever is coming ahead of us. That said, do you think the way we are doing leadership development and whether we talk about the style of uh, or the approach we are taking to leadership development and or the investments we are making, what is what, what do you th- where do you think we are at today? And and is this being done in a formal way or we just invite somebody from outside who has a title of a leadership coach or a development expert and do some t- spend some time on training and we go and have pizza and coke and of course learn something and be done with that? What, what, where do you see we stand here? I see a lot of different approaches from different companies, Sanjo. At Encore, for example, we do have a formal leadership development program, but it also relies on a lot of mentoring, um, formally assigned mentors, and then experiences both in the classroom and then taking those classroom experiences into the field. Obviously, as a construction company, our field leadership is critical, and that's all about people management. So leadership development for us is one of our core principles which really grounded in our, on our DNA of our company. But um, we have also done individual coaching, um, small groups, and things like that. I think the biggest thing I've seen is that it's got to be tailored to the individual needs of that leader. So depending on what their role is or their future role is and their current skills, trying to identify those gaps uh, and experiences that they can fill to move to that next level so they're ready for organizational change. That's really critical. So the fact that you are doing it from a qualitative standpoint, the fact that you do what you do, how effective do you think is it coming out to be? Because, you know, this is also something not you do it, shut it and forget it, that it's done once you're done forever. It's an ongoing thing. But then the, the techniques and the approaches that were used for leadership development, should they change given the environment we are in today? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if they should change per se. I mean, I think one of the things that won't change over time is the actual time required for a leader to develop. I don't think you can accelerate that leadership 
experience because that's really where leaders learn to hone those skills that they may be introduced to in sort of a formal setting like a mentoring session or a classroom. And so I don't see a real effective shortcut to that. Certainly you can put people into, and GE does this, for example, where they rotate leaders into different areas of the operation. So in that sense, you can accelerate someone's development um, in terms of getting them ready for the executive suite. But still, those rotations can be months or years for a given role. And so it can take quite a while to be ready to handle all the complexity of a business that an executive leader must face in their time. So I think time is key. So do I see it changing over, do I see it changing? Maybe the techniques and the ways we deliver, I think there's a lot more video and and sort of conversation and role play versus in the past, maybe it was more lecture-based. So I think techniques are definitely evolving and becoming more modern. And of course, that's a generational difference. When you've got more and more millennials ready to assume leadership positions, or already assuming and want more leadership experience, you're going to have to tailor your, your, your message to the way that those individuals learn best. So I think we are seeing techniques evolve, but I think the key ingredient of time, that's going to be a hard one to change, really, and accelerate. So one is to look at the level of investment and the time and the tools that we use and the process we use. Another is to fundamentally reevaluate the outcome we want. Would you say a decade ago, if you were to benchmark yourself or other peers that you work with, if they were to benchmark themselves as the level of leadership they are assuming and or the way they are demonstrating and that was working out well for them at that time, would you shift that outcome or the level or type of leadership you have to demonstrate today? Is that different because we are in a different environment? We have different level of uncertainty, volatility, and, and innovation and total disruption. Are there any tenets of leadership which are shaken? Are there any pillars which need to be replaced in today's day and age and for tomorrow? I don't know that I would replace any pillars. My one comment that comes to mind to answer this question is that I think obviously the rate of change is accelerating. And I think that's one of the things that we focus on with our leadership is really helping folks understand what change looks like. And we use a very simple model, Sanjaga, if you can think of like a triangle, and we talk about the first, the bottom of a pyramid, if you will, being awareness. And so when a change is coming, we need to drive awareness for people. And then once we have awareness, we can move into understanding sort of that second level of the pyramid and once we have understanding, and that includes developing skills to handle the change, if it's a technical or a process change, finally we move into preference, which is where people have fully adopted the change and are ready to move forward. And so one of the things that we try to emphasize with our leadership is that, hey, you've got to be able to be aware of that, that process of awareness, understanding that leads to preference, both for yourself as a leader, because you have to move through that to be able to effectively navigate a change, and then also to understand where your teammates are within that pyramid so that you can, if you're getting questions about awareness and you're thinking the team is at understanding, you can take a step back, readdress the awareness, and make sure that folks understand what's happening so that they can get into an understanding level. And so by coaching those leaders through that change process, we feel we're more empowered to be able to be more nimble as a business because now we have a a more deliberate process to adopt change and to understand and and accept it and move up that pyramid to preference. So I would say that's one pillar that's changed quite a bit, Sanjog, is that we want to make sure that folks are aware of change. The people we work with need to be aware of change and they can move through that process effectively. 
Now, what, whatever we are talking about here, given that things are changing, and it's not just the changing of the business part, the mindset of the workforce is changing. The way we deal with partners is changing. The geographic boundaries that we used to have, those are blurring, and the cultural shifts are happening. You talk about change, you getting by the boatloads. And frankly, leaders are supposed to be able to improvise, I believe, to be able to move everyone forward like a Pied Piper in spite of those changes that we are seeing, geographically, socially, economically, generational, you name it. So you could just, are are you saying that I could be the same chef who could keep building new recipes no matter what the ingredients are? In one sense, I think so. When it comes to the process of change, that that is more of a human condition in our view. And so that that's probably not changing as much as people think it would. I think, sure, there are different techniques that we can approach to build awareness or there are different ways to do training on a new process or technology that develop the skills that someone needs to understand to adopt the change. But change is, for most people, a hard thing. And we're kind of routine creatures, creatures of habit in, in our human mindsets. And so I don't know that that's really – the challenge, I think, is where we've got sort of a, a methodical, slow-moving mindset in terms of our brains as humans, but that's bumping up against this rapid rate of change. And so some of the things you and I were talking about earlier, just with the rate of change of new technology in the construction industry, we could be seeing people building off of you know, hard hats that have a hollow lens built into them where they're literally seeing the plan of the design laid out in front of them in real time in something that they can then build from. So no longer would they use tape measures or the uh, tools that they've used for years and years. So to get someone who's been doing that for even five years or 15 years to adopt that change is not going to happen quickly. So we have to accept the fact that people move at a different rate of change than the current environment is. And so we have to I think leadership and organizational change is about how do you how do you navigate that tension between sort of slower moving humans and faster moving technology process business climate all those things that we we can't really control as much as we would hope. So to me that's 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 where the pillars are sort of tested by this environment of rapid technological innovation. Different people keep coming and going within an organization or go in and out of the organization. The change is happening constantly outside of the organization. To accommodate for those changes outside, we have to make changes within the organization. So all of these three things are moving. Do you think we could play with and juggle these three balls at one time and make real progress? We can say we are busy, and that's what I hear when I talk to leaders all the way down to a field staff, that we are busy, But then are we able to really put a stake in the ground and say, this is our recipe, which will allow us to make the organizational change effective. It will make our leaders effective. And this is going to, in a very predictable and measurable way, move our organization and our people forward. But is that truly a recipe that a given company, not everyone, it's not going to be a general recipe, but can a given organization come up with their own recipe to make things happen and have that predictable outcome given these three different aspects which are changing? Let's explore that. When we come back, please stay tuned. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog All. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, with things in flux, whether leaders going in and out, organizational change, what you need to change also keeps shifting because the outside environment keeps shifting. And we have the the changing needs of how a leader should be working in order for us to get the change. And all of that combined has to deliver a predictable outcome on a sustained basis. Am I asking for an impossible task or is this actually happening on the ground because i only hear people saying we are very busy but not every anyone has said this is my recipe where i make all of these three things work well together and give a predictable and sustainable outcome i think that's the challenge of business right now and it when people say they're busy i think they're hoping they're effective sanjo but i don't know that they're actually measuring that effectiveness and I think a lot of companies can move certain pebbles forward, if you will. But one of the best examples I've seen of a company that did this very well was Red Robin, the restaurant company. They have about uh, 5,000 restaurants, I believe, and more than 20,000 team members. And when the home office or the corporate headquarters wanted to deploy a new change, whether that was technology, process, or people, they created what's called a capacity index. And what they did is they tried to, for each one of their stores, try to understand what is the capacity for change within that particular store, working with that store's general manager? And they would numerically assign an index to that. And then they would then decide how many changes could that particular restaurant or set of restaurants accept over a given period of time, say within a month. So they would build a deployment calendar of changes, and then they could plan out methodically on a quarterly basis, what are the changes that are going to roll out in these particular areas? And one of the powerful things they were able to figure out is that when they were deliberate about managing change, the restaurants were able to adopt that change very easily. When they weren't deliberate about that deployment calendar, that one restaurant manager described the process as, it feels like they're dropping bombs on us. And so that's not really what you want to hear for your frontline employees who are trying to serve your customers, that, hey, we're, there's so much change, I'm busy trying to manage that, but my primary focus is supposed to be on my customer. And so they, they became very effective at this, and I think that's a great example of what's required from a deliberate managing change process. So to recap, what you would do is you would assign a, a change index, how much time does, and effort does this particular change take to adopt, and then you would try to figure out how many changes I can roll out over time into my organization. And it is not easy, Sanjo. It absolutely requires commitment from the executive team and all your stakeholders, but when they see that process being repeated, it's happening on a regular basis, it's more predictable, and people like predictable change more than they like non-predictable or random change. 
So I think that's one example. Now, do most companies do it that, to that level of discipline? Not in my experience, but I think the ones that do well with this are the ones that can adopt that kind of a process. So the kind of changes you did mention, and kudos to Red Robins, they were pull, able to pull it off. Most companies are not able to, so I totally agree with you. Now, the kind of changes you mentioned were definable, and they had a scope. You could put a start and an end date to it, so it became like tasks or to-dos as part of a project, which you can plan around. When we talk about organizational change, which could include the kind of people you need to hire or let go or or, or reposition or the kind of mindset you want them to assume, which is not there today, you cannot create a project around this. It's an initiative. It's an ongoing effort. And frankly, when I refer to organizational change, we're talking about those macro-level fundamental shifts which in in the areas which for most of us as humans are fuzzy that's the change if i wanted to bring about in a company especially when we are saying the generational mix is changing what we want to do to fundamentally embrace a new way of doing and thinking within a company to be relevant in this digital age that's the organizational change I'm referring to. What about that? I mean, that's, that, that's a much harder problem, I think. Um, you know, when you look at what you need to, I would argue that that's, that's a discipline that most leaders do not have well understood. And if you think about this idea of succession planning and filling the pipeline with future leaders, leaders that may not take their positions for five or 10 or even 15 years, it's of course very difficult to predict what skills they would need in that future. I think that's why ongoing leadership training that we talked about earlier is really key because there are things that change over time. I think you've got to try to boil it down to a set of principles though that say, okay, what are the company's core values that we want to establish and how well can we measure those core values against our leadership team? And if our leadership team are really upholding those core values, then that's, that's the kind of person that we're going to try to groom and become ready for. Because I think, I think it's really making sure that you've got the right mindset for that leader because skills can always be developed, Sanjog. I think it's always a matter of if I have a person who doesn't support the company's values, no matter what skills they have, even if they have excellent skills, they will struggle to fit in with the, with the company's culture, and then they will struggle to uphold those core values, and they will be an ineffective leader. And so I don't know, I think it's a lot harder to make a recipe like we talked about for particular changes when you apply it to long-term leadership development. I think the key is to be nimble and try to do some kind of strategic planning that looks out, you know, three years and five years, and then occasionally you look out over that longer horizon and say, for example, in our industry, uh, electrical subcontracting you know, what, it, what would it look like if robots were able to do some of the work of electricians? Well, that's not going to happen in three or five years, but it could happen in maybe 15 or 20 years. So what does that mean for us? We do talk about those things. We're not making specific plans on it, but it's more of a let's keep an eye on what's happening in the industry, what kind of trends in IoT and all these other technologies that are coming through to make sure that that, that helps us inform our leadership development going forward. But really, it's about, for me, it's about making sure your leaders align with the company's 
culture and their core values. Because if you look at all the great leaders and all the great companies, that's the number one thing they work on is their culture. And if, and if you have a CEO who's not working on his culture of his team, he's not doing justice to his long-term health of his organization. So one is to think about some futuristic approach, like you said, robots going and fixing the electrical. That is the technology or its availability and affordability is going to cause you to then start thinking maybe three years prior that, hey, let me start working on some organizational change. But then that's more, I would not say reactive, you're still proactive, but you're still waiting for that outside change to happen. Regardless with whatever you're doing today, if you were to benchmark yourself to say, is this the best way I could be running my shop? Is there a way I could improve my processes or the rethink and reset my processes and workflows? Is this the best culture I could have in the organization? Are these the best set of technology tools? Are these people who are leading have the right chops? I'm not saying they don't have chops, but do they have the right chops to take this forward? Of course, people are thinking about this all the time, but is this actually a formal, cohesive effort where the organizational change, which you are bringing on voluntarily and not waiting for an outside event to happen and you react to it. And are we syncing that with the ongoing effort and investments in leadership development? Is it all lip service or we do certain things and say we tried and we come back home spent and say, well, whatever happens, it's bonus. (laughs) <laughs> I think, yes, I think the latter is happening. I think, I think the mindset of many companies is kind of a best effort will yield uh, incremental results. But if you look at uh, Lee Benson from Execute to Win, you can Google those guys, or, and something called an organizational culture inventory or the OCI, which is an actual tool, which I learned about in the past few years, Sanjay, that actually allows a company to uh, quantify quantifiably measure their, their, the strengths and weaknesses of their culture. And so you can create a spider web map. It's over 12 dimensions. And basically what you can do is you can say, look, this is what our employees and our leadership believes our culture is at this point in time. And then when you start to introduce change to that culture, if you want to make it whatever, whatever change, you can, you can remeasure that. So there's instruments there that are reliable and able to measure cultural change. And I think those are important. The fact that I didn't hear about this until 25 years in my career is a little disturbing. So that what that means is most companies probably aren't using that kind of a tool. And then when I look at Lee Benson, Execute to Win, they have a platform. They've sort of gone from this. He Just real briefly, he created this platform based on his experience as a CEO in the aerospace engineering space. And because he developed such a great culture and such a great way to execute processes, his customers were super happy. And he started talking to other CEOs and peer groups and realized that he had happened on some sort of magic sauce, if you will, or magic process that allows a company to really do well. And so he put that to the test and he started giving that to other companies and realized that, wow, we have something here. So this, what this tool, Execute to Win, does, it allows you to create really fierce alignment and measure your, your goals, how you're tracking toward them, and I think that's a great tool for companies to consider because if you want to measure progress both on your, on your organizational development but really on your key initiatives, are we moving the ball forward? Are we just making it a best effort? 
this is a way to quantify that process. And I think you're going to see some of the more successful companies moving forward adopt this kind of a practice through Execute to Win and companies like that, that they can really deliberately move the ball forward. Because I think that times when people are just doing their best effort, that may be fine for now, but what about your competition? If your competition is doing more than just the best effort, that's when you're going to get behind. And I think that's where the challenge lies in future leadership. Is it, based on what you just said, this tool is a great one to measure, but from a actual experimentation or what works and what doesn't work, is it something that we base our, our approach to some Harvard framework or do we create our own recipe so that it's not just pure throwing spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks? For us at Encore, we actually uh, we appreciate resources like FMI and Harvard, Harvard Business Review, but what we try to do is take those concepts and tailor them into our own um, our own culture, if you will. So a good example is we recently wanted to be clear on how the company makes decisions. And so we went off and did all the research and, and learned about what are the best practices that academic teams have learned about making decisions. And they came up with, uh, you know, a seven-step process. And so rather than just taking that seven-step process off the shelf and saying, Ta-da, here's the new process, we actually adopted that we modified it, we kept its essence sustained of those seven best practices, but we put it in a way that is now familiar and understandable to our culture. And so I think that's what companies really should try to do. I think if you just try to take those things off the shelf, there is a cultural component with any one of these uh, models. And so I think it's a conceptual model from the academic world that can be then customized, if you will, and brought into the culture of the particular company. So that way it's more effective. At least in our construction company, conceptual models are not a good, are not a good way to enforce change. It really has to be grounded in practicality and making sure that it makes sense for the folks who are out there on a construction site. So that's one example of how we do that, taking a, a theoretical or a conceptual or academic model, tailoring it to our particular needs and making sure we test it. And that's the key thing, Sanjay, we've learned is that once we've introduce a new model or a new process, we come back, you know, 30, 60, 90, and then quarterly reviews of those processes to make sure that the KPIs we hoped for, those types of things are being measured. Because again, a lot of companies, they they struggle to do that after implementation measurement, but that's where you really prove your ROI. And if you've not met the ROI, you've got to go back and ask the team, okay, what changes should we make to make sure we meet that promised that promise that we we hoped for when we brought in this new process or model or tool. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And, and let's explore the area of leadership development because the question comes up whether I should develop a leader in a way or in a direction that it best serves the organizational purpose or should I let them develop organically? in the way they are best genetically wired so that they become the best form of themselves and then let them be deployed or be leveraged to help move the organization forward the best they can potentially do. Should there be a bias in our leadership development approach since we are thinking as an organization or should we look at and work toward the best interest of that individual in terms of what's their maximum potential and help them develop towards it. 
what should be our, our approach, what would make sense. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjo Gall. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, leadership development should it have a bias where organization develops the person in a, be- in a way so that it best meets the organization's need or be unbiased? and get the leader to blossom organically and then see where they can best add value and allow them that room, that freedom to help move the organization forward. What do you think should be our view? That's your, like, this is Jeff's view you are sharing. I think um, one of the things that I've seen work best is to understand, I think Socrates maybe said, know thyself, right? And so I think, that's one of the key tenets of, of leadership development in my experience. You really have to understand your personal biases, how you make decisions, how you see the world, how you interact with people. We use lots of different tools for that, whether it's Myers-Briggs or Predictive Index, things that uh, StrengthsFinder, those are three that we've used in the past. And I think those are important because as an individual, it's hard for me to understand other people and how, what perspective they're bringing to it without understanding who I am as a person. Why that is important is because ultimately leadership at its essence is about influencing people. And, you know, I've, I read this study recently where um, they cited a statistic that 40% of the time people at work, particularly in leadership positions, are spending that time persuading others. So if you think about that, that's potentially two days out of your week that you're spending time persuading folks. A lot of that has to do with change that the company wants to do, or how to do work better, or whatever those things are. And so, so to have those, that, first of all, that understanding of who you are as a person is really critical. In terms of, like, leadership development, then building on that, how do, we, how do we give people the space to experiment? I think that's where mentoring and coaching comes in, Sanjo, because, you know, if, I'm, if I have a good coach, I can say, look, I'm going to have this crucial conversation with this individual Let's talk about it beforehand. Let's make sure I'm clear on what I want the outcome to be of that conversation. And then after I have that conversation with this folks, with this individual, I can then go back to my coach and sort of debrief and do an after action review, we call it. And that's really where you understand, hey, how well did that experiment work? Because part of the problem, again, is you have to tailor your message as a leader to that particular person's way of hearing it. And that's where I think it's a little subtle but um, the best leaders are the folks that have really good people skills and higher emotional intelligence. And so those things can be learned. But back to your original question of how much of this is temperament and how much of it is, you know, nature or nurture, I guess, to go back to the old biological question. Yeah, there are some people who don't have that innate ability. And so their type of leadership may be best, 
maybe best in an engineering position or that kind of a technical mindset versus something else that requires more people interaction. So I think you do have to understand what that leader's strengths are and where they match up best. We've had examples here at Encore where we've got a new group called Technology Solutions, and we took one of our best business development leaders and made him the head of that division. And he's doing a great job because his ideas are very forward-thinking, and he's very much going after the big, the big next contract and things like that. He, but his weaknesses are in, are in the operations, and so he surrounded himself with great operational leaders so that they could deliver on the promises we're making to our customers. So I think that's a good example where you take someone who has their best attributes, help them grow a new area of our business, and then support them with a team that can make sure that the delivery of that, of that new business is effective. And so I think trying to find those combinations of the strengths of that individual against what the company needs to be successful are really critical. And we have those kinds of conversations, and I think companies probably do that often. If they don't, then they're missing opportunities maybe to maximize their leadership potential and effectiveness because not every manager is going to act the same or do the same thing. That's the, that's the whole complexity of this, of this leadership development. It's, it's not such a cookie-cutter approach that I can do what I did with Sanjaw and then make it the same thing happen with Jeff because we're two different individuals. <clears throat> We have two different perspectives. So I do coach a lot of technology executives. And believe me, first many months just go into having them realize that they have to take the time to sharpen the saw. And their pushback on a regular basis is we are very busy because we do not have time to breathe. And when they do that, the people who report to them take it as a sign from the top that you're not supposed to invest time in yourself and instead get the work done because your measure is, your performance appraisal is going to only be looked at from a standpoint of how much did you produce. So you talk about leadership development or people development, organizations when they have change going on. And that's what they say. They say, oh, we have a lot of change going on. So we are doing one project after another. And I know of a situation where one of the leaders had their spouse eat cheese and bread for three weeks in a row because this person did not have time to do anything working together as a couple. So personally, a person suffers. When you go to work, the only thing you can think about that, how can I get this done, this done, and this done? You don't take the time to sharpen the saw. You don't meet your peers to figure out what are, what are we trying to do and where are we going? Where is this taking us? We talk about organizational change. That means we kept the leadership development on a back seat and we want organizational change to always be successful. So I'm sharing with you the reality on the ground. What do we do about this? I think that's the fundamental question for uh, the executive leadership of any company to really address. Hopefully, when they stop and think about it, in the case of CIOs or technology leaders who don't feel they have the permission, I would challenge that to say, go to your supervisor, whether that's the CEO or the CFO, and say, look, I need to spend some time every month or week doing some professional development. Um, one example I do here in Denver is we have a CIO mastermind, which has, you know, eight other CIOs from different industries. And so we meet three and a half hours, four hours, once a month. And we do bottlenecks and we get lots of 
great input. And so it's invigorating for me. It allows me an opportunity to get input from my peers outside of my company who are specialists within the CIO role. And, and that's, you know, I think if a, if a president who has a CIO reporting to them doesn't understand the importance of that, then that would be the opportunity for the CIO or the CTO to go to that individual and say, well, let's talk about why this is necessary. Because if we're not doing, if we're not doing the sharpening, the saw things, Sanjo, then the, the long-term implication is that we're really going to be behind. We're not going to have that time and space that we need to do that deep thinking, which is so critical in today's age of distraction and busyness. Um, deep thinking is where creativity comes. Deep thinking is where innovation comes. Deep thinking is where we start to make sense of all the different data points we're, we're sort of absorbing during the day. And I think most people who work in that CEO or president role understand the importance of that, even though they may not be able to manage their own schedule to eliminate the busyness. So my point here is that you've got to make a concerted effort to carve out that time. And unfortunately, it's not a one-time situation. It's almost like exercise. If you exercise one time, that's great, but it's much better for your health if you exercise on a regular basis. I think the same is, is true for professional development or that time where you can sharpen the saw. Now, it doesn't have to be every single week, of course, but it needs to be on a regular cadence so that folks have that time and space. And I encourage folks to get out of the office and go somewhere where it's quiet and they can have some time to think, or maybe it's a peer group, or maybe it's some kind of other professional development experience. It can be tailored. There are a lot of opportunities for those types of interactions within and outside of a company. And if you're sitting here listening and thinking, well, I can't do this at my company, I would challenge you to have that fierce conversation with your leadership and really try to have an understanding of how do they see professional development. Because the fact of the matter is most people who get to an executive level had a mentor, had a coach, they've coached people, they've probably done something to get there. They probably didn't happen by accident. And so if they can reflect on that and give that leader permission to do those professional development activities, I think that's where the organization will definitely grow. It also gives the leader finally an opportunity to have that time and space that they need to make sense of their particular area of focus. Based on the explanation you gave, if I were to give you a company like that where a boss and the boss's boss and a boss's boss's boss are all guilty of always staying busy, who does who who starts this? Who do we go to? How do we break this vicious cycle of us not doing enough for these people? These people then further take it down to their reportees and convey a message that the only way you will grow or survive or will get a promotion is to show how much more did you do compared to last quarter? How do we break for that? For me, I think... Well, that's a good question, and I think it is a cycle. And I think for me, one of the areas that we've tried to do is if you can, let's say you're a leader of a team, an IT team, and, and you give your team some permission to do some exploration, some professional development, and then you can you can show to your leadership that by doing that, our team is now has developed a new process, or we're now better at this or that. We use Net Promoter Score for our customer service metric on our IT team. And we've we've made great strides in in measuring that and improving it over time. So those are ways for a team leader to sort of show the positive benefits to the business of taking that time for professional development. Sometimes you need to have a test case, and sometimes you maybe not ask for permission, you ask for forgiveness. But it depends on your hierarchy of your management. 
I think other times you could go as an individual, go to your supervisor and say, let's have a, let's have a fierce conversation about this. Let's really talk about what are the impacts of burnout. And there's plenty of studies out there, Sanjay, we can cite that indicate that busyness is not good for the long-term healthy employee. It's not good for the long-term of the business. And so if the business is invested in the long-term, which many are, they should be concerned about making sure that their people have time and space to develop. I think it starts with me as an individual leader, though. And if I'm in an environment where I don't have that support, I've got to start asking for that support. Sometimes we just make assumptions because the boss is so busy. I assume that he's not interested in being less busy or having some time for professional development. I bet you most of the time that boss would say, oh, I would love to take the time. And so then it becomes a practical matter of how do I prioritize my time? How do I protect that time so that I've got time to do the things that I know are the most impactful instead of doing the most urgent busyness that maybe feels good to get it done in the moment, but really doesn't move the ball forward long term. Let's take a quick break, listeners. When we come back, let's discuss about this whole idea about shifts in leadership. And that shift happens because someone chooses to leave the organization and because the organization is not supporting them. Nobody wants to leave an organization till the time they don't feel their own dreams and what they wanted to do while the organization is not working out. And then you have turbulence caused because of that. And then we, when we bring other people in, that person, either the person could be not a good fit or the organization, again, creates that toxicity which makes these people go. So we are never able to truly settle down. Well, that's our dream, but we don't settle down. How do we minimize the issues where we have keep, where there's a constant shift of leadership which prevents us from having an effective change happen in a positive direction. What do we do to minimize? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjo Gall. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. You make organizational changes, and that could lead to exodus of some leadership. And then when you have Issues with leadership, the organizational change doesn't happen. Both sides suffer. How do we think, bring things back on track? How do we kind of take a step back and stop this cycle again and, and make a positive movement forward? In my experience, Anjo, that's, that's a really important topic. It is very difficult for the company when a, when a particular leader leaves, oftentimes there are signs that, are, that something's happening with that particular leader. 
And I know my, in my career, there have been times when I've sensing something's not going well with a particular individual leader and that we don't take the time necessarily to explore that with them. I think sometimes in our professional world, we think, well, I shouldn't get too into the personal side of things or whatever's happening with this individual. I think that's an opportunity where we miss out on developing trust. And so if I see one of my colleagues that's maybe struggling or are sensing that they're not happy with their current role, sometimes it's an opportunity to have that conversation maybe outside the walls of the office and then go to lunch or go to coffee and, and just talk through and see how it's going for that person often people want to be heard. And if you can listen to that person, that in and itself will start to build that trust and restore that trust that they may need for the organization. And so I think we just have to have a kind of a buddy system where we watch out for one another and try to make sure that we're checking in. We call it accountability partners. So I might have an accountability partner who's a business unit leader. And so I'm obliged to check in with him and give him a call or see how things are going and make sure that he or she has that that colleague at work that they can talk to about things that maybe they can't talk to their subordinates about because it's not appropriate or they maybe don't feel totally comfortable talking to their leadership about. So I think that's, first of all, prevention is really an important part of that. When someone does leave, though, um, you know, wow, that's really tough because sometimes they may not have developed their, their, the people behind them that could assume that role. I mean, that's one of the things we try to focus on in leadership is, hey, are you training your replacement? I mean, we feel that we have an obligation or a duty to, to train someone who can step into our role so that we can either move on to another role within the organization or at some point when we leave the organization for retirement, for example, you know, we've got, we've left the company in good hands. So Encore is a little unique in that and that we're, our, one of our tenants is to be a legacy company that's here for a long period of time. And so all of us leaders think of ourselves as stewards in this position. And I think that's a good mindset to have as a leader. If you're a steward of your position, that means it's temporary. Whether that temporary period is one year, five years, or 10 years, you're still not going to be there forever. And so at some point, you're going to leave, whether it's by choice or not by choice. And so how can you do what's best for the organization to make sure that you are developing your leadership team. You're giving them those professional development opportunities we spoke about earlier. You're giving them that time to experiment and try new things and develop the skills they need to be an effective leader. Unfortunately, a lot of leaders struggle with that because they feel like if I train my replacement, that means they can get rid of me. And I've I've rarely seen that happen. In fact, most of the time what's happening is the management wants you as a leader to grow so that you can do more for the organization. But you can't do that if you can't give your current responsibility to someone who's been trained and has the experience and and ability to take on those those things. So you get stuck in that cycle. And when you're stuck in that cycle, Sandra, I think that's when some leaders feel they have to leave the organization because they feel stuck and there's no way out. So it's really hard to get out of that cycle, but it just takes some courage to have those conversations and understand, hey, this is where I want my career as an executive leader to go. What can you do to help me get there? What should I be doing to help myself get there? I think those are great conversations for an individual to have to prevent that loss of turnover. When my child feels stuck, they should feel that they can come to me. So who's the parent in the organization? Who's supposed to be the parent in the organization? Who's kind of outside of the situation and watching the siblings fight or, or one of the child fighting with someone or having an issue so someone they can, you know, fall back on and, 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 and 
feel that these will these people will do the best. That would prevent so many incidents of exodus. I think it's got to be two things. Um, one is that if you're able to find a trusted colleague within the organization, that's great. Some companies have a formal mentorship program where that relationship can develop um, through a selection process and things like that. But there's also a lot of opportunity for informal mentoring where you, if there's someone you have an affinity for within the organization and they're, they can understand what's going on in your world, it's, it's going to take some time to develop. It's probably two or three one-hour coffee sessions before you begin to understand and start to develop that trust. But if you can develop that trust, really, then you can get into some of those more um, difficult situations where you feel like you need to be heard. Uh, Sometimes also outside of the company is helpful as well, because I think, you know, companies have their culture. And if you're talking to someone from the company, they, they're just going to be agreeable to the, your view of it often. So sometimes having that third party, someone who doesn't work with you can bring a fresh perspective into that daily struggle that you might be having with trying to get something changed or done in the organization. Sometimes that fresh perspective is so important. And I think that's, Again, when we talk about networking, people often think of that as, oh, I'm just trying to find a group of people on LinkedIn that I can ask for a job in the future. It's really not that. If you make an investment into your network, your professional network, then you can build a set of trusted advisors. One leadership coach I heard about asked this question, which I think is great. He said, who is your board of directors for you as an individual? So his philosophy was, hey, I'm an individual. I need a board of directors. These are trusted advisors I can rely on who are outside of my day-to-day world that I can have conversations with. And you wouldn't, of course, meet with them as a board, but there's sort of three or four individuals that you can go to for different questions or different experiences. And I think that's a wonderful approach to help leaders, you know, get over that sense of it's lonely at the top. Cassandra, in my experience, that's the one leadership trap that most of us fall into. We feel like, okay, I'm a leader, Now I'm supposed to have all the answers. That's not true. It's okay to have people support you, and it's okay to ask for support. And I think that's the biggest thing that we've got to have leaders understand. I love that idea about the board of advisors or directors you mentioned. And you're right. Leaders are very lonely up there. And that loneliness is self-inflicted in many cases. Now, my question for you is, should we always look for people outside? You said you could have a, a colleague inside. But when I talk about parent, someone who's all the way up to, at the top, mm-hmm. could that be the person play the parent? It's at the, at the end of the day, an organizational design issue, right? This person feels stuck. The person is going to leave. If you want to you know, get a person out because they have a misdemeanor or they have done some damage or they're causing some damage to the company, that I understand. But if a person is feeling stuck, they should not be looking at outside first, right? We, in fact, say in families that you should have a faith that your parents will always be there for you and listen to you. Is it too difficult for us to build that sentiment among people who work within an organization so that they can look up to someone very higher up in the organization and say, no matter what, I can go and spill my heart in front of them? You know, I think that's a really good point. I mentioned Lee Benson before, the Execute to Win uh, CEO, and he is a really great tenant. A podcast he was on, he said, CEOs should spend 60% of their time with their people. Um, and I think that's, that's a good 
example of if I, if, let's say I'm a director and there's a VP or someone between me and the executive leadership, most executives say they have an open door policy. And I think it's okay if you can find an executive, maybe it's in your chain of command, maybe it's out of your chain of command, depending on the side of the organization, and just say, hey, can I get on your schedule and sort of talk to you about some of the things that concern me? I think a lot of folks who are sort of lower on the on the org chart, if you will, or, or more junior in their careers, it takes courage. But I think often we as leaders now realize that we are helping that individual grow. And so most of us who want to be good leaders, understand the importance of mentoring the next generation. And so whether that person is two or three levels away from you, that's okay. Maybe they're not even in your line of business. That's also okay. So again, back to the point of asking for support. If you ask for that parental support, to use your term, Sanjo, then you've got an opportunity for those people to actually provide it. And sometimes executive leaders are dying to support other people, right? And they want to help. They want to contribute. That makes them feel sustained and fulfilled. So if I, as an individual, do not ask for that help, I'm actually not allowing them to give something they're really desperate to give. And again, it takes courage to knock on that door. That's, quote, the open door policy. But most of the time, leaders are willing to listen. Um, And if that particular leader doesn't listen very well or you have a bad experience, maybe it was a bad day, maybe that's just not the right perspective, and you might try a different leader in the organization. But probably you'll find someone who's got a, a listening ear and they're wanting to just hear you out and hear your problems and maybe not solve them, but certainly listen and validate them. I think that's a key part of the process. On behalf of the show and our listeners, thanks so much, Jeff, for sharing your insights about how organizations can work on syncing the organizational change with the leadership development and get the most out of the effort. Thanks so much. You're welcome. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, listeners, this was an interesting conversation. I'm sure you would have some nuggets to take away and some points to ponder. Please like us on Facebook if you like what we what you hear today. And uh, please like us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter. Thank you again for listening to this segment on CTN. This is Sanjog, all your talk show hosts. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.